Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Today, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of Tape Op Magazine. According to their website, Tape Op is a bi-monthly magazine devoted to the art of making records. Over the last 20 years, Tape Op has been an essential tool for engineers, producers, and other tape operators worldwide, with a print readership of over 70,000. Today, we'll talk to the magazine's founder, recording engineer Larry Crane, as well as some longtime fans. We'll also play music recorded at Larry's studio, Jackpot. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lick the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No. I'm talking today to the award-winning producer, Tucker Martin. Tucker, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks, Portia. It's nice to be here. I agree. So great. So... Tell us about your experience with Tape Op magazine. Oh, Tape Op. What would the world be without it? I don't <laughs> like to think about that. <laughs> you know, I remember as a young, aspiring recordist, I was cobbling together a recording studio in my basement. And I picked up the recording magazines that you could get, you know, Mix Magazine. That was kind of the main one. And I felt like I needed to read it, but I just didn't relate to anything that was in it. Like it was all just multi-million dollar studios and, you know, gear that I just could never fathom being able to afford and interviews with people working in environments that just didn't relate to me whatsoever. Mm. You know, they were in these quote unquote world-class studios, but I was just so inspired by recordings that were made in weird, funky places in studios that didn't necessarily cost millions of dollars. So it felt like there was this huge gap between like what I could read about studios and what's happening in the recording world and what it was really like being a young person on a service industry income <laughs> to trying to make this work. So when I discovered tape pop for myself, it was such a revelation. And I immediately just felt like these are my people and I belong and this is my community. Like anybody that writes into this magazine or that writes for it or anyone that's mentioned in this magazine is somebody that, you know, I feel a kinship with and want to know more about. So it was really, really huge. It was and still is like kind of the hub of the recording community in my mind. And that community is international, as the magazine indicates. So without that, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know if I would have felt enough kind of encouragement to keep doing it and enough inspiration coming in from different sources, from learning about other people that have made it work in weird ways that didn't appear to know what they were doing, but were making really cool records. Because I'm pretty much self-taught, mm -hmm. so I've never felt like I knew what I was doing. But <laughs> reading that magazine, you feel like that's okay. Like if, you, if you're excited about what you're making... And of course, you're figuring out what you're doing the more you do it. Right. Then that's okay. That's fantastic. That's the, big, that's the best tribute that that magazine, I think, could possibly have. Well, they deserve it. And I'm thrilled that they're still going and yeah. still thriving and that every issue is something that I anticipate that is, know, and look so forward great. to. Well, happy anniversary to Tape Op happy Magazine. Happy anniversary. 
Thanks, Cheers. Larry Crane. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> and thank you, Tucker Martin. I don't know what I did, but you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> was 1,000 Miles by the Corin Tucker Band, recorded at Jackpot Studios. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. I'm lucky enough today to have in the studio the man himself, Larry Crane, the editor of Tape Op and the founder and owner of Jackpot. Larry, welcome to the future of what? Hey, thanks for having me here. I'm so excited to have you here and to talk about Tape Op Magazine for your 20th anniversary. I, I'm kind of shocked that we can say that. Right? Doesn't that feel crazy? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I am really amazed. Yeah, does that make you feel old? Yes. Because <laughs> I started it when I was five. So, I mean, you know. You look awesome. Thanks. By the way. For 25, yes. Yes, for 25. You're, <laughs> you're looking terrific. So, tell us about how you started the magazine. I mean, you were in a band. You were starting to do recording. You know, you'd been... Doing recording for how long? How long have you been doing engineering? I, I think my whole life, but I didn't know it. Yet, you know, <laughs> you know, the whole thing started because I had been in a band, a band called Vomit Launch, right? Uh, from eighty-five to ninety-two, and then when when we broke up, I moved up here to Portland from Northern California, and uh, for our last two records, we were assigned to a label that also had a studio. Was that Teen Beat? No, that the Teen Beat helped put those records out because of rough trade going bankrupt and a bunch of other wonderful things. But the record label is actually called Mad Rover. Oh, okay. And the owner, one of the co-owners of that label is John Bacigalupi, mm-hmm. who now is my partner with Tape Op. Great. And he had a studio and a label. And so we were on the label and we would use their studio. So I had the luxury in the, in the indie rock world, a luxury of like, you know, as much time as you need, you know, within reason. And so when I moved here, I'd, I wanted to work in the studio, but I didn't want to have uh, limitations of time. Right. So I started building a home studio in my basement, as people do in Portland. Yes, they do. <laughs> Lots of them. <laughs> and, you know, it just kept getting busier, and, and I needed to learn. And, and Tape Op was really part of just the adventure of learning more about recording. Wow. And it's always been free, which is probably one of the biggest characteristics Not, not of always. It. Not no? always. Actually, when... the first three years, I was publishing it by myself. Uh-huh. And I did subscriptions and I sent some around for free, you know, to places like record labels and magazines and and some radio stations and stuff. But it wasn't totally free. So but then when John came aboard in 1999, which is like three years into its history, he came up with the business model of, of advertising, paying for the printing and distribution. Right. And that really upped our readership, which is a really great thing. That's fantastic. Yeah. So how big is your readership now? It's about 50,000 print 
copies and about 75,000 uh, PDFs. Wow. That go around. When did you guys start putting it online and making it a digital mag? Well, it's never quite been a digital mag. It's 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 always stayed focused on the print version. Mm-hmm. And then we the PDF version came just a few years ago and it's basically the same thing as the print version. Right. Although we started adding bonus features to the PDF version. With the next issue. This Excellent. 20th so anniversary. It's changing again yeah. a little bit. But the the online version, we could, you have the articles online, but some of them you have to pay to read. So we have sort of subscription service for reading online. And basically we monetize the older content. Right, the archives. I noticed right. that. Yeah. yeah. And, and the reason being is that the new stuff is free mm-hmm. because we're putting your eyeballs in front of advertising. That covers all the costs. And then beyond that, with the older stuff, we want people to say, you know, this does have value. And so, you know, there's a nominal fee to, to use it. Right. My understanding is that Tape Up is one of these incredibly beloved magazines. It's a resource for people who are getting started in engineering and a resource for people who have been doing it for years. You know, I think mm-hmm. I think what you guys talk about in the magazine is relevant sort of at all levels. And you also have some really interesting interviews with people who are just doing the job. Yeah. And that's what I appreciate. I mean, this show is basically about people doing the jobs that they do in the music business. There's lots of different jobs. And there's lots of different jobs in this business. Exactly. So it's important that people get a chance to learn about what other people are doing out there. Yeah. When I started it, I wanted to be like focusing on sort of people working outside the mainstream idea of a studio or small studios, home recording. And then as I moved along, I was like, there's so much breadth to this. Let's, Let's talk about people with crazy history. Let's talk about, you know, all all kinds of different artists. Let's talk to people that have done, you know, just one record that was really great, you know, like whatever it might be. And just have a wider variety of people in the magazine and talk to the people that make the recording equipment Mm -hmm. and talk to mastering engineers and all kinds of folks. So I wanted it to kind of show that it's not just like, you know, the one superstar engineer, (laughs) you know, or producer that had a hit this year. Or not just like one person making the one record in the bedroom. Right. You know, like it's a variety of stuff. Tape Up is also interesting because it's kind of an archive of the music business for the past 20 years in terms Mm. of, you know, what we've all been through. I mean, you know, from my perspective as a label, the last seven years have been really tough. You could really see the decline in sales and how that's affecting artists and labels and everybody else. Yeah. Did you see sort of a commensurate decline in the engineering world? Oh, the the hardest thing was kind of getting gutted by advertising. I mean, mm. when you sell an ad to a company, you usually have an insertion order. And it's going to be like, say, you know, a six-issue insertion order, like for a full year of tape pop or something. When the economy went kind of downhill, they just said, sorry, you know. And so you can't play hardball and make someone pay for something that they don't want. Right. You have to be nice because you want them to come back around, hopefully. And so we lost, like, overnight, I felt like we lost, like, you know, a lot of advertising revenue. The issues got thin. We work on a, a really weird business model. I, we don't get salaries or anything. Me and John, we're partners. Mm-hmm. At the end of the year, we split up the profits, if there are any. Uh-huh. So we run really lean. We don't pay for office space. We don't do anything that you would kind of think a magazine might do. And at the end of the year, we pay out the writers and we pay ourselves if there's any money left. Right. So there were some rough years, yeah. Yeah, it was for all of us. It was, yeah. And the, the studio probably took a hit too. So on the other hand, I'm half my income is making records and... And people are like, well, we'll, uh, we'll just put that off or 
we'll make it on an inbox or something, you know. Right. So we'll it was do that at home. <laughs> some tough times. And yeah. that was exactly when I moved into a new building oh my with God. my studio and spent a lot of money. Yeah. And bought a house. Oh. I did everything at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah. Oof. We did that too. We bought our house in two thousand seven. Like whoops. It yeah. <laughs> Wait a year. <laughs> yeah. One year later. <laughs> yeah. Horrible. Um, but have you been seeing the market recover recently? Well, I think so. And I think the thing to always keep in mind is that there are people like us that run smaller businesses that that at the end of the day, we're going to survive because of the passion of it and right. what we want to do. And one of the things that, that we did, this is kind of in a, a little bit business talky, but it's probably good to have this talk here, is we did flat rate advertising rates. Because mm-hmm. as you might know, if you want to place an ad in a magazine for Kill Rockstars, the people will say, okay, the rate's 2000 for a quarter page. And you go, mm-hmm, yeah, how about 1000 And you haggle, and then you pay the rate. And we found that we had to have rates that were like, you know, three quarters higher than what we really needed to get, you know, a company like Tascam or someone to pay what we needed to actually print the magazine. And so we decided, you know, let's throw this out the window. This is really John's idea, too. And we have flat rates now. And what happened was all the boutique companies that make little products— that it might be a one or two person operation, they're all like, oh my God, oh, it's affordable. I didn't know that, you know, because we brought it down into their realm. And so we don't haggle. We don't spend as much time haggling with the big companies. We got way more advertising from smaller companies now. Oh, wow. And and that's really helped us out. That that was a huge shift after like, you know, a few months even just, oh, we're back on track. Right. You know, so. That's great. It pays to kind of know who you're clients are yeah you know? absolutely. Just to think about that and go do they have the do they even have the knowledge that that's how the advertising world works right right now do you guys Maybe. do all those sales yourself or do you have like a volunteer sales team or what do you um you know nobody really volunteers for the magazine thank god oh good <laughs> we good. get to pay people but john my partner john botchick he does some of the ad he's the head of the ad sales and the publishing part of it and he has two people that work under him one's in san francisco and one in Austin who do a lot of the ad sales stuff. We'll go to trade shows like like uh, Winter Nam, mm-hmm. and we'll go to the AES conferences, which happen uh, once a year, and that's the Audio Engineering Society. And we'll go to those, and all three of them will be out running around selling ads. And I'll be going, I'll be either running a booth like at AES and just talking to people, or going around and coming up with ideas for interviews, mm-hmm. or and we talk to people about reviewing equipment and. So those are big shows for us. We'll we'll all be staying in hotels or renting houses and running around town. Right. Getting a lot of work done. Yeah. I've got a great staff. I mean, everybody is just fantastic. That's awesome. It's fun to see everybody, you know, once or twice a year. Right. Because you don't all live, obviously, they don't all live here. Nobody lives in the same place. Yeah. (laughs) uh, We're all over Boston, Austin, San Francisco, Sacramento. Cool. Yeah. New York. Wow, it's that's crazy. Great. So how much of your time would you say you spend running around the country doing interviews or do you do them on the phone or email or how do you do your interviews? I love doing them in person. Mm-hmm. I just, I think it works better. Like if we were on the phone right now, I couldn't look at you right. and, and, and we, we might kind of miss cues. And yeah. I think when you do interviews in person, it's more of a conversation. Yeah, It's I less agree. stilted and it's really fun. So I try to do that. Sometimes I have to do them over the phone just because I, I just know I'm never going to be in your town, right. you know, or something, or it's winter and I don't want to go to Montreal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't really have a budget that, you know, flies people around right. to do this, but we kind of have to go, I'll have to say, like, I want to take a vacation here and then I could sneak in an interview and maybe ride off a day at my hotel or something. Right. I just kind of have to do a real low budget. 
But I am I'm going to L.A. later this month, and I'm going to interview a bunch of people. Oh, cool. So I'm, I had, uh, I'm going to go see David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. Oh, fun. So I just added on like a week of just staying in a VRBO, and uh-huh. I'm going to just run around and interview a lot of folks. Awesome. So that'll be good. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So you would say, though, you still do about 50-50, like the recording studio, and then... Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's never, there's there's not, even like every month is different. Right. You know, because my friends will go, well, how often are you doing this or that? I'm, I don't know. Right. I might sit down and work for the magazine for like a solid week of just catching up. And then the next week I might be in the studio for a solid week, but I'm still answering emails for the magazine. And, you know, it's just kind of back and forth. Right. I mean, the nice thing is the, having the change, you know. Right, it makes life interesting, right? Oh to yeah, constantly be doing every day is a little different. different. Things. Yeah, every day. Like I woke up and I went and did a podcast today. <laughs> you know, that's different. <laughs> right. Don't do that every day. Exactly. No. Usually, you're on the other side. You're on this microphone. I'm I usually I'm over there where the computer <laughs> screens are. <laughs> exactly. Yes, this room is all of your life. I see sound treatment. I see mic stands. <laughs> I see speakers. Yeah, looks yeah. familiar. You know all about this stuff. <laughs> Do you find that that your recording life is also sort of, that's a great part of being a a recording engineer is that you get to work with different bands all the time and that part is changing all the time too? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm at a stage after, you know, 20 plus years of doing the studio end that people kind of search me out based on stylistic stuff I've done before. And that always is nice, you know. So it, it kind of doesn't seem like I'm too often doing something where I'm like, whoa, this is pointless, you know, <laughs> or, or I don't like this music at all. It's mostly like kind of in my wheelhouse, as you might say. And so like a lot of indie rock, which is, you know, what I was playing in bands in the 80s like that. So mm-hmm. and things like having worked with Elliot Smith, as you know, that that kind of leads a certain sort of songwriter to me that that makes sense. They're they're working pretty high level if they're thinking about his music and they're trying to get to that. You know what I mean? Right. So they're good songwriters with a lot of technique usually and and then lofty goals and that's really fun. Right. Because then we can really you know work on a lot of harmonies and cool things that are fun to work on in the studio. So yeah, it's nice. I mean, I feel like in a comfortable place. I I always think, gosh, I wish I could have done so and so's record or <laughs> why couldn't I be busier and things like that. But but you know, every time I think I'm not busy, the next week rolls around and I got more to do than I, I was, have time. I was going to say, you're basically running two businesses full time. You're not busy enough? Well, that's, yeah, because that's why I took on educational stuff too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's why, that's why, because I do the lynda.com uh, instructional videos as well. Because you weren't busy enough. I needed more to do. Yeah. <laughs> this is also, just FYI, this is a man without a child under the age of <laughs> that's No, that's come up. I mean, as, as you know, it's like raising a child is a lot of work and, yeah. and, and, and a sort of a organizational, you know, can you watch you? Okay, where's the babysitter? You know, yeah. where's, where's grandma? Whatever. Exactly. I decided not to have kids probably when I was 18. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and I made a concerted effort to not have children the rest of my life. And, uh, <laughs> You've been doing excellently at that. Yes, it hasn't happened yet. And uh, <laughs> and it's not because I don't, I love kids and I have such a blast with them, but I just had this weird feeling that I had other things to do mm-hmm. that I, and it wasn't, not that, that they have to be exclusionary, no. but that I did not think I could possibly be a good father. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just given thought, the rest of the stuff going on in your life i really i couldn't i couldn't envision how i was going to pull that off and i just and i just my passion was just really putting things out there you know when i when i was in vomit launch i was like the manager the 
you know, I ran our mail order service. I did all our bookings. I, I dealt with everything, and uh, and I really had that drive, you know, to to push that forward. And uh, when I started tape op, I was like, you know, same thing. It's not about just the act of making the thing; it's the follow through, right? And all those things. And so I've always looked at everything that way, and and I just knew that that's kind of how I wanted to live my life was, and it, it just really wow. I miss sometimes that I don't have a, an heir to hand things over to or something. Hey, you want the tape op empire? But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I don't think I could have, you know, people have come by and talked to me about the studio, like guys that want to be in the, in as, as deep as I am. And, you know, they'll be like, oh, well, I had a kid a few years ago. And I'm like, honestly, that, you know, right. if you hadn't got that rolling before, maybe it would be hard to do now, you know? It's true. It's, it's true. Hard. I mean, it really limits you. You on want, some, you want to work 12-hour days, you right. know, when you have a child? It, it seems cruel. It know? is, right. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely would be dividing. And also, you'd have some partner who'd either be a saint or really pissed off. Yeah, mad at you. <laughs> yeah, all the time. Definitely. Oh, my God. But you have done a lot in terms of, uh, you know, leaving a legacy with both Jackpot and Tape Op. And plus, you've trained up how many people? I mean, how many people have you had come through Jackpot that a, you've a taught lot. all about? Yeah, a lot. Engineering. But, you know, I was just writing a piece about that last night for the May issue. And uh, one of the things that happens, though, is, like, I have employees now, and and and, and I've had for, for over a decade, I've had employees that are engineers, Kendra Lynn and Adam Lee. And I hardly ever get to work with them. You know, and train mm-hmm. them. Like Kendra, I never hardly had, had a session with, and she'd gone to school for recording, and then she just started engineering and producing at the studio. But almost always, like we'd be, we'd be on opposite schedules, right? You know, so I was like, oh my god, I just kind of thought about last night. I wanted to write this piece because I was like, you know, they talk about learning from others and like you know, in, apprenticing at a studio and learning stuff, and I never have time to say, okay, come down, I'll show you how to mix this thing. Or right. It's always like, well, you work Tuesday and I'll work Wednesday and then you work Friday and you know. Yeah. It's so it's kind of crazy. Like I've have trained a lot of people and then they've moved on. But the people that stuck with me the longest, I've spent the least amount of time <laughs> training. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, that's because you're always weird. trying to fill the calendar. Yeah. And and if I say like, oh hire Adam to help me do this session, it's like an extra $150 a day and clients are like, you know, can you do it on your own? I'm like, yeah, I can, you know, but I'll be more distracted. Yeah. You know, it's a different game, so... was Never Listen to Me by The Thermals, recorded at Jackpot Studios. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Larry Crane of Tape Op Magazine. 
So I have to ask you a question that uh, that maybe nobody is interested in except me. But I feel like one of the weird, and you're like in a perfect position to answer this question. <laughs> one of the things that I'm interested in in modern music recording technology and and just the stuff, because, you know, tech is constantly changing and the stuff that people use mm-hmm. to produce music is constantly changing. But, you know, we recently talked to Kiran Gandhi, who is an amazing musician, and she works in basically electronic music. She mm-hmm. uses Ableton. Live, right? She yeah. works in Ableton Live. Ableton Live, yeah. Which is really cool. But one of the things she was saying is that she really has a lot of respect for the performers today who are using Ableton Live technology, but making it sound organic and and rich. Yeah. And I was like, why don't you just use analogs? Like, why don't you just <laughs> use like drums and bass, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, is that just me being an old fogey? Like, am I just coming from like fogey perspective where it's like, what's wrong with you yeah. kids today? When I was a kid, we had when to I play kid, drums and bass. We had to play bass. drums with our hands and feet. Yep, that's right. <laughs> you know, we, have, we had blisters. We have these machines that do it. <laughs> I don't get it. Well, I think I look at that in two different ways. One is that I love an organic, you know, instruments in the room with microphone session. I love it. I, uh, that's where I'm, I'm, that's my forte. Like I'll run out in the room and I'll go, whoa, 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 let's change the kick drum pattern. Let's let's play this way. And, you know, like telling people how to play the parts to get better results, rewriting their bass lines, rearranging the songs. I mean, I, <laughs> they love that, I'm sure. <laughs> well, well, that's what, you know, that's what I mean, producers I'm a, do. I'm in a record right now where they're, they're happy as, as they can be, yeah. you know, because I'm, helping change the songs up the songs are really fresh for the band so i'm oh that's cool tightening them up and, and it's really fun to have that that door in the door was open to me it wasn't like i'm yeah just, yeah you know coming in like a dictator <laughs> yelling at them i love doing that kind of stuff and that's really my forte is like you know instruments live musicians and everything but you know every time in the recording process or the creative process of all this that that you draw a line and you say well you know like recently, the, George Martin passed away, right? Right. Fantastic producer. There's no doubt about that. And somebody put a little picture of him up, like floating around the internet that said, you know, uh, George Martin, he did more with four tracks than most people do in their entire lifetime. You uh-huh. know, because like when the Beatles first started, it was limited right. recording equipment. And actually, the first record was on two tracks, but that's a whole other story. But the engineers that were working under George making those records would have loved a 16 track, a 24 track tape deck they would have loved pro tools they would have been happy as could be it's it's really like romanticizing right the difficulties of, of older recording scenarios because they did get good results it seems kind of a little backwards to me mm-hmm. I'm, i love romanticizing amazing recordings and records no matter how they were made if it's a great record it's a great record right great performance great song whatever but when you start telling people like, well, this this is the way to make records, mm-hmm. you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong right out the gate as soon as you say it. Right. And and I think what she's talking about is, you know, don't let the tech, like, okay, you take something like Ableton Live, it comes pre-made loops, everything's ready. You can start making something happen in a moment. But that's like child's play. And to get to that next level where you're actually turning it into something that others might not even guess was made in Ableton is like, okay, you're getting in deeper and you're making something more creative. That's the artistry. Yeah. Portion, you know, and, right, I get it. And anytime technology comes along, you know, the great artists take it further. Right. Or or the great artists push push technology to follow them, like craft work or mm-hmm. something, or new order or right. back. You know, they make things fall things come around later that do what that took them a year to do in the studio. You can press a button. Right. You know, so I think, you know, what she's saying is is like 
oh, this program is is maybe kind of safe and sterile when it starts, or it's it's kind of does a certain thing, and then someone can make it not sound like that, right? And start to sound more organic or bigger or breathe life into it. Then it's that's real artistry, and I absolutely agree. I get I get it. Yeah, I yeah. agree with that yeah. too. I just am so interested because it, to me, it's like music fads, right? It's music. What's mm-hmm. Cool, because for a while there, you know, the reason these things were created was because people wanted that sterility. They mm-hmm. wanted that sort of electronic distance in their music. You know, it wanted they wanted it to feel like it was created in some sort of sterile cold room right. with, you know, just perfect echo and nothing, you know, nothing else, nothing extraneous. I just, it's just yeah. funny how things go through phases. I think the tools that are available, like some people are making things in GarageBand, you know, because it's on the computer and it was technically free. Mm-hmm. Not really free to buy a computer, but, <laughs> right. you know, but it's there and you can you can track it. I would have gone nuts with that when I was a kid, you know. So you, you use what's available and what you find first mm-hmm. and work. And then, you know, you you start gathering more things along the way, yeah. you know, I think. And, and I think anyone, that's why you'll see some bands get more electronic sounding as time goes by because they're like hey we can control these things or we can add a layer to this or or they get more acoustic because they're we, we can start playing instruments now or it, it just all morphs and you know I, I just think i think the thing that worries me is people setting rules mm-hmm. you know or, or some sort of self someone off on the side or, or listening to steve albini too much you know like <laughs> I, i'm done i say that out of massive love for the man who's <laughs> who's been really great to me but, you know, it, it's like if Steve Albini's saying, you know, the only way I want to record is to tape and blah, blah, blah. That's great. You know, that's his choice. Right. You got to stop thinking that, that he's telling you how to do anything. And, right, and right. you know, if you go to Steve, he has a certain way he'd like to work. And it makes, he gets better results. I'm the same way. I had someone come to me and say, mix this song, but I want to use this kind of multiple bus compression technique to mix the song. And I said, buddy, I don't know how to work that way like i'm gonna be learn. i don't want you don't want me learning on the job you want me doing the best i can do right with the techniques i've already got in front of me right you know so i mean you, you kind of try to guide people towards that or say you know use me as a resource not you know don't throw curveballs at me that are going to make your project worse right you know right. but uh, i i think i think the intersection of technology and art is ultimately really fascinating and you know there's been lots of times i've used things from like the sort of pop world. Like I interviewed Manny Marikin a while back who's mm-hmm. who's mixed all kinds of ridiculous pop music that you hear on the radio. And I was watching him do some sh- demonstrate some techniques and I was like, oh my God. And I started using those on my next session. <laughs> Completely different kind of music. Right. You know, but but I picked up something and, and he was just talking like, let's reinforce the emotions. Let's make it emotional because he's getting, you know, four hundred track things to mix, you know, with like twelve producers and and one superstar artist and it's like boy that's going to be hard so he's got to find a reason to take all that and where to focus it you know wow and uh, it's it's fun to talk to people that are doing that because i wouldn't want to do that right and i don't would not feel too comfortable at least initially <laughs> right you'd probably yeah, get used to way. it yeah eventually yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know i think i think we can draw from everything i've had so many artists you know they'll, they'll badmouth a certain style of music or you know, synthesizers or something, and you're just like, wow, like, you know, that it's good for you to delineate how you want to work, but it doesn't mean other people are wrong, you know? No, absolutely yeah. not. It's it's just, you know, that is always such a 
this whole conversation is such an interesting part of the music business because, you know, like you were saying, a band can come into your studio and you can teach them some things. You know, yeah. they, they wrote the song, they were creative, Absolutely. but you can show them some ways to get more out of what they've already started. You yeah. Know? And that's the kind of creative collaboration that professionals can bring to the table, which is really awesome. So, yeah. you know, the only time it gets scary is, you know, in all the horror stories of, you know, major label A&R people or producers telling bands, this is what <laughs> we're going to do. You, you know, have no say in it, you know. There's not as much, I mean, there might be at the top level things like that where like, look, we, you know, we got you because you're a pretty face and we're going to groom you. Right. And this is what we want. But, you know, I mean, nothing I've worked on has ever generally been handled that way. And even when someone's made a wrong turn as an artist, a lot of times the label's just been okay, you know? Well, but, yeah, and I don't necessarily know. know any firsthand stories like that. Yeah. That's just the horror story. Yeah. That's sort of the but it's, it's stock happened. horror story. Oh, yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, it's happened where a producer's assigned to an artist and and it just isn't the right fit. doesn't make any sense. Of course. Yeah. You know, that's always, that's happened a lot. <laughs> but that happens, yeah. you never know. You know, that yeah. happens all the time. Oh, yeah. You know, I hear, I get people coming to me with stories where they're just like, well, they, they wouldn't let us do that, or the producer wouldn't let us do this or that, or wouldn't listen to this member of the band, and yeah. or only liked one singer and not the other singer, and you're like, wow, that's yeah. kind of dangerous way to act. <laughs> that's happened to our artists, too. Yeah. You know, they've oh, gone yeah. into the studio with people they were really excited about, and it just wasn't a fit. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's important. I mean, I, I've, I've rarely had that happen, I think, but it's important for people to, to pick the, the person they're working, collaborating with based on something a little more. And I mean, a lot of, one thing I was thinking about the other day, I was reading some articles and, and uh, people were talking about doing test, you know, sessions, do like a one day, just get together, record something and just see how everyone feels together before you commit to like, you know, 14 days or something. That's an awesome idea. Yeah. That's and fantastic. I, I think that makes a lot of sense, yeah. you know, but sometimes you can't do it because of distance and where people are located. But Right. But it really, it really makes a lot of sense to, to get a feel for each other. Yeah. Nowadays, always advise my artists, you know, take meetings with engineers and producers before, oh, yeah. you know, go sit down with them, have a coffee for an hour and just talk about, yeah. you know, your vision. Because if it turns out they've got a completely different vision, you better find that out right now before we're, you know, paying for you to be in a studio at X hundred dollars an hour. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could be, you just talk about how the process is going to move forward. Right. You know, are we using a click track? Are we not using a click track? Are we building things? Are we using Pro Tools or tape? Are we using a combination? You know, I've had those meetings. I, I had someone call me a while back and we had the most awkward phone call. And I said, look, and he was getting a little antagonistic with me and saying some weird things. I said, just come meet me because <laughs> I'm not, you know, whatever's happening right here in this phone call is, is kind of derailed. Like, I'm pretty nice. I really like making records. <laughs> I'm a friendly like, person. <laughs> yeah, I'll show you the studio and talk about how you can do stuff in here. And and uh, and I, I don't, you know, when they're when they're taking an antagonistic viewpoint right from the get go, like, well, why why are you this much per day or something? I'm like, whoa, you got to come see the place, right. you know, and understand that there's a huge investment and. And I've got, you know, decades of experience. That's that's why it costs more. Right. You know, right. it's just it's just kind of frustrating to to have these goofy emails or phone calls and right. but when people come and meet, you know, they can they can decide. You know, I met with a band a while back and I really liked the band and we talked and I think it was mostly budgetary, but I was also like a little worried about just their concepts mm -hmm. about what they wanted to do in the studio. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe they were getting a little too heady and mm -hmm. a little less just like grounded. 
and that made me feel like you know when you're when you're really far in your head about what you think you're doing then maybe the reality of what you achieve on the floor is is a little less than satisfactory yeah and it might be a letdown and then we're gonna have to figure out something and it sounded pretty difficult and i think you know some cases that it's great for artists and in this case i think they do a lot of home recording mm-hmm. maybe they just play around till things land in the right place and and it, then they got a record, you know? Yeah. You know, some bands really work well that way. Yeah. That, well, that sounds like good advice for young musicians to sort of, you know, do your homework on before you go into the recording studio. Oh, yeah. Figure out who you're recording with. See if their philosophy matches yours. Maybe have a yeah. meeting with them. And don't don't assume that the person you're going to to work with, like some, like in my case, as a producer and engineer, I'm not going to have a, a vision for the artist, I'm a collaborator. You mentioned right. collaboration earlier. Absolutely, I'm 100% a collaborator because I I want the people to leave happy. Like these records, I'm proud of most everything I work on, but it's not for me. You know, it's like it's for them. I want them to be happy when they walk out the door. I'm not the one that's out there on the road promoting it or or begging labels to put it out or or anything. I you know I want them to get the thing they want out of it. And so... Sometimes people come in and they're kind of thinking, I'm just going to be like, all right, this is ex- how everything's going to be. <laughs> and it's like, I don't have, I don't have that vision, you know? I mean, right. I can, I can work towards it, but I really need people in the room working together, looking at each other, sorting it out. I can't just sit there at home with a spreadsheet and go, okay, this song is 110 BPM and it's in A minor, you know? I yeah. Don't, I don't have, I'm not, I'm not building the tracks for people, you know? Right. That's not my thing. I don't yeah. have any any time or ability to do that it's not my forte right, right. you know i want I, I had an artist say once he i he said i was going to come up and make a songwriter record and i said great we're going to get uh, paul pulverenti on drums i'm going to play bass we'll hire adam to engineer the first few days and the artist goes great do you need me there <gasps> and i said well they're your songs i mean do you want to come play guitar and sing <laughs> yeah like on your song yeah on your song and he goes oh i guess i could yeah, yeah i think that makes sense okay that's hilarious. Like, wow. I mean, you know. Oh, my gosh. That, yeah, that's surprising. Yeah. So, that's you know. Very surprising. Once it started happening, he's like, I don't know how I couldn't have been here, you know. Like, yeah. I, I'm right. Yeah, we're, we formed a little band for these three days, yeah. you know. Well, he maybe just didn't understand the process. I guess so. That's you best know? case scenario, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. I know. It's funny. Yeah. And we haven't talked much on this show yet because we haven't done an episode on, on producers, but we will. Right. We're planning on that. But one of the things that I think is most impressive about producers in general as a breed is that a they have a ton of patience for the most part i mean the good (laughs) ones the ones who really get good results they seem to have a ton of patience and b if you figure this is like a brand new situation with a brand new group of people these people are able to quickly assess the situation and then sort of generally diplomatically figure out a way to improve things yeah. In a short amount of time, because, I mean, most records are made in less than a week, I would say. A lot of them, yeah. You know, and I mean, if you have more money in a bigger budget, two, three, whatever, how many weeks. But in general, it's, you know, it's really just a matter of days. So to be able to do that diplomatically and calmly is, is yeah. a feat. I mean, a lot of times you're, you're saving the artists from themselves, you know, you're, and right. I don't say that in a negative way. I just say that in a way like they might have some bad tone on the instruments. They might be playing songs too fast or too slow, just simple little things. And the, it, I think when, when something starts going in the studio that I just have like a checklist, I, I must, I don't have it consciously in my head, but, you know, warning signs pop up, right? you know, and I go, oh, 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 I've run into that problem before, you know? Right. So, you know, 
like the thing I did the other day was changing a a baseline on the chorus from eighth notes to to more of a melodic pattern. Uh-huh. And so it takes this big like boom 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 thing and turns it into the doom doom. It opens up the song. Opened up the song. Now the song's going to be easier to mix. We've all, we just added a new a kind of a new counter melody to part of it, and we're also driving the chorus in a different way at the end now and it's going to be more of a payoff when we get to the bridge so so you're thinking of all those things and whereas eighth notes would just kind of like like chem deal pixies bass lines right Right. they're really awesome sometimes yeah but other times they're just kind of lumbering and and taking up space so so it's like you know you you just think of those things because you i watch out for eighth note bass lines right I i go are they is the bass player just being lazy or is there a reason this needs to be this way right you know so you just have all these things in your head that you you keep as warning signs or problems you've encountered before and you look for them before they happen or before they get committed to tape and mm-hmm. uh, you help, you know? And I, I think I learned, I, I learned by being in the studio under a couple of great producers in the eighties and, and early nineties and, and, you know, people who weren't overtly like changing what we were doing, but just making everything better. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I always took that, you know, and then I watched other producers over the years that I'd work on records with people and I'd see them work in different ways and, kind of form my style out of that for sure you know so 20th anniversary of tape op is there anything you guys haven't done yet with the magazine that you're looking forward to doing in the future you know we did get to interview brian eno so i think wow i think i'm you might just want to fold it up now yeah i think i'm done (laughs) you're done (laughs) that was always my my abstract goal was like you know oh my gosh you know if i ever got to talk to him and yeah and the day it happened i was like nervous but He's a really, really wonderful person, really wow. smart and gracious. And, you know, I think I think the there isn't, like, any one thing at this point. Like, you know, that was kind of always an abstract goal to talk to Eno and and, uh, and certain people like that. But the goal is to, is to keep it relevant, you mm-hmm. know? I think that if there's any goal, it's to keep it from being, like, something that, that's kind of turned around looking at its own navel and... I don't. I don't want anyone to read the magazine and think, "Oh boy, those are a couple of fifty-year-old men making that magazine." <laughs> I want people to read it and go, "This is full of life and creativity and positive." And and so I'm always trying to find new people to interview that are that are doing work if they're younger. Obviously, a lot of them are going to be younger now. And I'm always trying to look for older guys that are still around. You know, like mm-hmm. we never interviewed George Martin. Ugh. You know, and I knew. That was always a long shot. Right. You didn't need to do an interview. Another right. Another interview about the Beatles, goddammit. <laughs> but, you know, it was always like, well, if it opened up, we'd do it. You right. Know? So there's, when people pass away, there's always that feeling like, oh, God, you know, wish we'd done something. You right. Know? So, you know, there's there's a bit of a rush to get some of the people in there that are, that are you know, pushing 80 or so, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's always great when we can get to them and do a really great, you know, historical interview. But, man, you know, it's so good to keep your ears to the ground you know like like uh, sean uh, everett and blake mills who did the alabama shakes record mm-hmm. you know did a really good job and it's like i'm, I'm gonna go try to track those guys down in a couple of weeks you cool. know yeah. and someday we'll track down rick rubin too yeah right because no, you never read interviews with him about producing records, never you know so yeah. we're, we're working on that guy too that's a great idea yeah so there's people like that that'd be fun to to get in there and there's just i've got a list i have a spreadsheet Oh, it's good. Just, it's like 250 deep of people <laughs> to interview, you know. It's a lot to do, Larry. I know. Got to get on that. And I want to I want to uh, showcase more women that are in audio too because it's about a 5% woman 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's a 95% male-dominated field, so there's right. 5% of them are women, and, and you're like, that's just ridiculous. That, yeah. that needs to be changed, you yeah. know? And maybe over time, if you slowly show, you know, there's women making records, you know, which there are, and I've trained a lot, right. you know, you know that, that maybe, you know, no people aren't looking at it as like this stupid male-dominated field, because I think that's really gross, you yeah. know? Yeah, but it's also difficult. I mean, we just talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago. It's really tough because when we do talk about stuff, we always end up marking it by saying like women in music absolutely, or women in engineering. And it's, I mean, I wish we could just be like engineers, musicians. Abso- absolutely. I, I, you know, I try to look at the magazine like that all the time and you'll never see like tape op presents the women, the women in recording in- <laughs> issue, you know, and right. put them all in one issue and then be done with it for five years. Right. So, you know, we take we take a stance of, like, everyone's completely equal mm-hmm. to be in there. And since it's a 95% male-dominated field, that ends up looking that way. But, you know, we're always, I'm always, like, curious when I when I hear about a female producer, mixer, engineer, et cetera. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of keep an eye out, but not try to be too ridiculous about it. And it's hard, you know, it's a balance. You yeah. Know? I, mostly, I want to put the people in there to so others see that yeah you know so if you see a young person in tape op it's you know you're hoping that a young person sees that and goes i could do this too yeah you know whether gender race anything obviously it just doesn't have to you don't have to really address that in the interview or make a point of it but just having a balance and i think that's so nice and important you know i agree yeah and on that note larry crane it's been such a pleasure to talk to you thanks for coming on the future of what oh thank you so much i'm honored was Olympia Must Die by Witchy Poo, recorded at Jackpot Studios. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Tyler Stone is a producer, an engineer, and a musician, and she joins me in the studio today. Tyler, welcome to the future of what? So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yay. So, on today's episode, we are talking about the 20th anniversary of Tape Op Magazine. Very exciting. Yay! So, I wanted you to give us some perspective from your own life about how Tape Op has had an effect on you. Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of choices out there today with what to read to get your technical information. And I try to read all of them, quite honestly. (laughs) But the thing that I think makes Tape Op stand out from all of them is the broad amount of information. It's not just technical. They do beautiful album reviews. They bring in the artistry of the craft as well as just the technical end. And they they have a really wonderful way of kind of merging the two together so that you go, oh, wow. So I see how I can apply this to my artistry, not just to, you know, making this one little tweak on my mix or something. So it's more exciting, I think. So how did you get into this whole 
field of recording and engineering and producing and you know it's funny such. i when i think about it sometimes i think oh well it never dawned on me and i didn't even consider doing it until i moved to san francisco and and i was going to produce some stuff or actually i was going to be the singer songwriter and be produced and and i got thrown in the studio and said well here here's how it works. I'll be in the other room. And it was a bit of a sink or swim situation, but I was reading Larry's commentary on his Facebook page about, you know, how he started noodling with cassettes and then he got his first four track and blah, blah, blah. And I went, oh my God, that's what I did. I, you know, I used to like take my little cassette player and hit the, you know, record and and pause button and edit things on the cassette. Uh And then I got my first four track cassette recorder. And then from there I went on and I got performer and I thought, oh my, oh God, even before that I got, I got synths that, you know, could program because I was just really trying to be a one man band. And I wanted, I was like, there's got to be a way that I can just like sequence this stuff. And so I started getting into sequencers. And so by the time I did get thrown into the water and I actually kind of had noodled quite a bit more than I think I'd realized. So wow, that's awesome. And it's also not that usual for women, at least to talk about doing that, you know, because I, now that you're speaking about that, I'm remembering myself in like, yeah. you know, 1984, sitting in my bedroom with my cassette deck and like yeah. making these little, you know, pause, these edits. Yeah. So I, mean, I could make this cassette that was just the way I wanted exactly. it. And, and it was, it was a big thing. And I think that, you know, a lot of us did it and didn't, I think you're right. There just wasn't much of a dialogue going on. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> It just wasn't what girls talked about when we went to school. Like, no. oh, I made this cool mixtape. No, <laughs> no, the boys were doing it and we were like, oh, that's cool. Right. So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah, weird. it is. I don't know it's, why that is. It, I don't either. It's, culture. It is culture. And, and it's a culture that personally I'd love to change. I'd love to get more girls talking about it and more interested, you know, just thinking that this is something that would be interesting as opposed to just dismissing it as as something oh well that's something the boys do I'll I'll, sure I'll dabble in it but that's not my thing so well it's funny because I think that we are starting to have more women doing this and I think the technology has really lent itself we talked at the end of last year to Kieran Gandhi who works in Ableton Live and she Mm -hmm. was talking about all these women that's that are working in Ableton Live as a as a medium, yes. mm-hmm. which is very technological. Yes, and the technology. I mean, that's what got me into it too. Was having this technology available and being able to just sit in my home studio and dink around and try this new thing and that new thing. There's so many fabulous platforms now to to explore between Ableton or Logic or Pro Tools or I use Digital Performer, but they're all really wonderful digital audio workstations, as they say, to use. But then, you know, you have all the plugins and the effects. And I mean, you can just go on and on and on. And that's where, for me, it gets really exciting. So, (laughs) Is there anything else you want to add about Tape Op at the very end? No, I would just like to say a big congratulations. I I think it says a lot about a magazine that can stay relevant for as long as Tape Op has. And a major congratulations to them. Tyler Stone, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What. Thank you. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Hey, everyone. I'm excited to announce that Kill Rockstars has teamed up with Sean Cannon of The Guest List to produce Say Yes, an Elliot Smith podcast. On this episode, Sean talks to Gus Van Zant, Lance Bangs, and Mary Lou Lord about how Elliot's music got into the movie Goodwill Hunting. Check it out. 
Okay, tell me your name and what do you do? Elliot. 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 Steve. Uh, Elliot. Smith. I play music. I called him on the phone just to check in and say hello. And I remember him. I was like, so hi, how's it going? He's like, good. You know, yeah. And I was like, so what's going on? He's like, um, yeah, so I'm working on this movie. It's called Goodwill Hunting. And at the time I was like, is that a movie about going to thrift stores and finding cool stuff? And he laughed. <laughs> He's like, no, it's not about that. It's it's a, it's a story about a, a... Oh, wait, hold on just a sec. Uh, from Louisville Public Media and the guest list, it's Say Yes, an Elliott Smith podcast. I'm Sean Cannon, and that guy right there is... E.J. Friedman, and I am a writer, producer, performer, and um, a human being. He's also where things start off today as we talk about how Elliot Smith's music ended up in the movie Goodwill Hunting, which, you know, is, is what catapulted Elliot to a, a much larger stage. You know what? Uh, let's just go ahead and back up a little bit from where we were there. Uh, let's go back before the phone call, uh, before Goodwill Hunting, before EJ even knew the movie's director, Gus Van Zant. All the way back to the tail end of 1991 at a gym in Seattle. Uh, where EJ saw this guy and said, Oh, you look familiar. And he's like, yeah, you look familiar too, which I know he'd never seen me before, but it was just one of those things where you, you say hello to somebody, like, hey, you know, you look very familiar. Oh, you look familiar too. Turns out uh, EJ recognized the stranger from a spread in Interview Magazine about Gus Van Zandt's other movie, My Own Private Idaho. Uh, that movie starred River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. This guy's name was Michael Parker. He was in it too. And as it just so happens, uh, the movie My Own Private Idaho was based in part on his life. So they get to talking. Uh, Michael and EJ become friends. And eventually... Michael introduced me to Gus. Uh, and I went to Gus's house. And uh, we talked. And, and uh, we hit it off pretty well. And Gus was an incredibly interesting person. Very quiet. Very unassuming. He always liked to sort of pay attention to what was happening. It was never about what he was doing. It was about, what are you up to? What are you interested in? What do you, what do you want to do? That desire to know what other people are into is uh, kind of why we're here today. Because the next time EJ drove down to Portland, he found himself at a record store talking to the guy behind the counter. We hit it off really well. We had some similar interest to music. And he told me that he ran a record label called Cavity Search Records. And uh, I bought a couple things. And then he also gave me some stuff by people on his label. He's like, you should check this out. And one of the records that he gave me was by a guy named Elliot Smith. It was called Roman Candle. And I remember um, putting it on and listening to it in my car. And the first thought that I had when I listened to it was that it was very personal. I felt like I was listening to someone's life story kind of unfolding before me. Um, someone had something very strong to say. After leaving the record store and uh, listening to Roman Candle, EJ found himself at Gus's house again. And he's saying, put whatever music you want to on. And I happened to have this, you know, it's the stuff that I brought with me. So I was putting on different, different things to listen to. And I, and I remember putting on Roman Candle. And then he kind of stopped. And he asked me, he's like, well, who is this? He played himself. 
hotel. And I said, it's a guy named Elliot Smith. And I don't think he, at the time, it probably didn't register to him. Elliot was around in Portland, so it's not like people didn't know who he was or that what he was doing. So Gus being kind of in the scene in Portland, I think he had to know about Elliot's music. I can't believe that the way he heard, he found it was, you know, through, I can't think that it was just me playing it for him. I had to think that there were other people also who said, oh, have you checked out this guy named Elliot Smith? And based on what Gus Van Zandt said in the past, that's, that's almost certainly true. But we do know at the very least, this is one of the moments where, where things started to click. It made an impression. And, and then uh, Gus ended up considering Elliot's music for his 1995 film To Die For. In the end, that didn't really work out. However, as Gus says here... The next project was Kubo Hunting, and I thought that it would be really nice as a um, sort of musical backdrop of the movie. I think even before we started shooting, like I was thinking in terms of Elliot's music, but according to Gus, uh, editor Pietro Scalia was initially following the vision of writers and stars, uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. In the script, it had mentioned that there was world music, like there was different, different music from, from different places in the world. It was the actual like musical um, backdrop to the, according to the script. And uh, he was trying to make that happen. So um, we just shipped some courses and... Um, and used Elliot's music. But I mean, I didn't know until finally we were able to put it in whether it was actually going to work. The more they watched it, the more it just made sense. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard the Corin Tucker Band, The Thermals, and Witchy Poo, all recorded at Larry Crane's own Jackpot Studios. You also heard our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on the shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. <laughs>